Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is going to come from Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 13. It reads, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Lord, or friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you uh, the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how, much, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. You may be seated. would invite you to keep your Bibles open to, uh, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking, I, I think, um, uh, not for the rest of the day, even though we could spend the rest of the day with these 13 verses, but this is Jesus' teaching that describes his, his prayer life. And I think that before we, we talk about prayer, we should spend some time in prayer asking God to, uh, to bless us. So that's bow our heads once more and join our hearts and ask God to bless us as we press our minds into his word. Father, you are, are great and high and lofty, and you are so glorious that there is a hiddenness that keeps us from, from being destroyed by the greatness of your holiness. And regardless of how intelligent we are, Father, or introspective or contemplative or outgoing, we can spend the rest of our days thinking about the greatness of your presence and of your power, especially of your love, and never feel that we've really begun to touch the hem of the garment. And so as we, we think about prayer, Father, and how it is, how it is centered in your presence, we're asking as we think about these very words, these teachings of, of Jesus about his own prayer life, we, we ask, as we always ask, that you will give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, in such a way that specifically our prayers are transformed. And this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now we're in a series that we're calling Walk. 
And uh, it's based on that scripture that's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. That scripture says, it's up here on the screen, let's say it together out loud with our outdoor voices, whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Let's say it one more time. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. One of the, uh, the great things that happens when you become a, a grandfather is uh, not only is there these, these beautiful little kiddos that come into your life, but there are these moments in which they are the ones that help you to understand something about God. Last uh, night, we were keeping Blair, our little uh, 20-month-old, and uh, she loves to play with those Fisher-Price little people. And my wife uh, accuses me of being a bit of a hoarder, but she's the one that kept all of that stuff from our own kids. And so she has uh, that out, and Blair's playing with it. I'm sitting over on the hearth watching, and uh, she lays some of those little people down there beside me and goes back to grab some more. And while she's gone, I grab two, and I hide them in my hand. And she gets back, she dumps them, and immediately that kid knows that something's missing. And so she looks at me, and she goes, where are my people? (laughs) And I put my hand out like this. Actually, she doesn't say it quite that eloquently. I'm giving you the translation of the Goo Goo Gaga stuff. And I put my hand out, and she begins to take one finger at a time and to pull my fingers apart until she is able to see that little toy. And once those fingers are open, she's able to grasp that, that, that little people, that little person. And I often think, you know, sometimes I, I think that that's the way that we approach prayer, that it's the peeling back of God's fingers in order to get some kind of a blessing. And that's why prayer is hard. And that's why prayer is, is hard work. At one level, there is, there's this struggle with the fact that it doesn't seem like there's a voice that comes back to us. There was a preacher at the, uh, the Madison Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church back in the 1940s, very famous preacher by the name of George Buttrick. And Buttrick described, and this is in 1942, so it's during the time of the Second World War, when there were lots of prayers that were being said by parents and family members about people, their, their family members and their friends who were across oceans and fighting in that war. And he said, sometimes our prayers seem like a spasm of words and a cosmic indifference. A spasm of of words in a cosmic indifference. Who doesn't know what he means? Sometimes it seems as if the the words that we are launching to God find themselves at best in a universe that's indifferent. And in the worst of occasions, being launched into a universe that doesn't seem very friendly to human beings. Prayer is hard. And I think that that's one of the reasons why prayer can easily slip the mind. And for those that have been raised in the tradition of praying before meals and praying before meetings and prayer being a part of our life, it can seem that that prayer becomes the preamble of, of the thing that we want to do, that we pray and then we go and do it ourselves because it seems so much easier. Rather than, than what we do is the result of those, those long 
times of enduring in prayer with God. But then we see something completely different in the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, what we see is him getting up very early in the morning before anybody else is up. Before anybody else is up, while it's still dark, taking a walk to what is known in the area of northern Galilee as the Aramost, to that solitary place where he can spend time in prayer with God without the stampede of ministry interrupting him. There are other times when he breaks off from that stampede of ministry in order to walk up a mountain to pray by himself through the night. We see in the example of Jesus something completely different. Think about this. Where did Jesus shed tears and shed the sweat mingled with blood? It was not in the presence of Pilate. It was not as the crowds came to jeer at him. It was not while he carried the cross, but it was in Gethsemane. The author of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, says that when Jesus lived his life in the flesh, that he offered up his prayers to God with fervent cries and with what? Tears. And so it's in the garden as he prays before the cross. It's in that, that garden with his friends who have fallen asleep that he's anguishing over the suffering that is to come. They look poised. He's talked to them about his crucifixion and his suffering, his passion. They have shared a supper together. They have sung a hymn. Now they're in the garden, a place that they had been going to every night during that last week of Jesus' life. They look poised, able to get their rest, able to get their sleep. Models of trust. Not anxiety-ridden. But in that garden, Jesus is struggling in ways that you and I have never struggled about something. He's struggling with this cup that he has been handed by God the Father to drink. And three times he's praying to take the cup away. And the answer is not okay. The answer is an angel who comes not to stop the suffering, but so that Jesus can continue in faith to suffer. And it's in this crisis that the ones who look like the model of trust while he's falling apart They are the ones who fall away while he strides triumphantly to the cross with all of its injustice, its cruelty, its brutality, and its violence. He enters into the suffering while they flee for their lives. So what is it about his prayer life that allows him to do that while the rest of them are falling away? Well, some time before that, in Luke chapter 11, 11 chapters earlier than what Luke has to say about the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 22, the disciples had this front row seat to watch 
Jesus pray. And they're, they're struck by the way that he prayed on that particular day. And they, 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 they ask him, and these are men who know how to pray. And they ask him, because they see something vibrant, something spectacular to their senses, they see something in his prayer that make them want to ask him to teach them to pray like he does. And because Jesus wants for prayer to be vibrant in the life of all of his disciples, we have his words, his teaching on what it means to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, we, there are three things. You can take some notes down. There are questions for small groups in the conclusion section. But in, in Luke chapter 11, the first 13 verses, we see a model, we see a parable, and we see a challenge. We begin with a model. We call this prayer the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better understood as the disciples' prayer. He teaches them to pray, forgive us our sins, which because Jesus was without sin, he was without blemish, it would be impossible for him to pray this prayer. It's not his prayer. It's the prayer that he's teaching his disciples to pray. And he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. The very first word that Jesus uses to teach people, his disciples, to pray is one of the most important. He says, when you pray, say, Father. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, this is how you pray, our Father. The difference, the great difference between Christian prayer and every other kind of prayer that you encounter in the world are those words, our Father. And it sums up the nature of the Christian faith. We we believe from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God is this power who is able with that power to speak a word and it creates everything that you and I experience. He is a gigantic power whose, whose glory pales the sun that would blind us if we tried to look at it for too long. And what Jesus is teaching us is that when we approach the creator of the universe we are to call him Father. So the answer to the question is whether or not the universe is friendly is yes. Because at the heart of the universe is the love of a father. He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. When I was growing up, and couldn't read but was just listening to the preacher, I would think, what in the world does it mean to hollow somebody's name? Well, to hallow it is just the opposite. To hallow it is, is to make it unique, to make it significant. The request that we are making as Jesus teaches about his prayer life is that we're asking God, who is our Father, hallowed be your name, to be God to us. We're asking 
for God to be able to come to us, not just as Father, but to recognize Him as God and to come to us and to be God to us. And then He says, Your kingdom come. We pray for the will of God to be done and to be done and to accept it as such. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a unique word, this word daily. It means give us what it is that we need for the day. Forgive us as we also forgive. The forgiveness that forges community between us and between God, who is not just God but our Father, is the very forgiveness that forges a community between people. One of the things that that we that should mark us as not just a community of people but a community of people who have who have who are striving for the kingdom of God to be formed inside of them is this idea of forgiveness the forgiveness of God should always change us as it pertains to people and then he says lead us not into temptation basically what he's saying there is we're asking God that when the opportunity to sin is present, to keep the inclination to sin away. And when we have the inclination to sin, to keep the opportunity far from us. And Jesus says, this is the model. You begin with the greatness of God. And that that God comes to you. And that it's not just coming to you as God and seeing all of that glory and being hallowed in your life and made holy and set apart, but that you, you are so connected to His will that when you are in the presence of that God, those are the words you pray. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as He says on the Sermon on the Mount. And then you talk about your daily provision and forgiveness and about your, your life. But then he stops there, and that's where he moves to the parable. And, and this parable, I've spent uh, uh, decades, it seems, thinking about it. He says, it's not enough for you to have framework. Because at the center of this prayer is your father. And he tells them this, spo- this story, and he, and he begins it with the words, Tis ex humon. Who among you? Or suppose one of you. And you find it in places like Luke chapter 14 that talks about uh, you know, a, a son falling in a well. Or in, in Luke chapter 15 with how many of you have 100 sheep, 99 come, one's missing. He, he talks about all of these, these, these parables or he gives these examples that begin with these words in Greek. And the answer that is expected when you see this is always in the negative. He goes, if you had a son or even an ox who fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, which of you would not try to get him out? If you have 100 sheep and 99 show up and one's missing, who among you is not going to go out and try to find that sheep? And the answer is, well, there's absolutely no one. Of course we pulled the son, the ox, out of the ditch. Of course, of, of, of course we'd go and find that lost sheep. So he starts off this story, and this linguistic key helps everybody to understand that he's giving them a hypothetical that would never exist. He says, here's this guy that comes at night. He's a friend of a friend. 
He comes at night to a village. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm here to visit for a couple of days. And because this is a, a, a culture of, of honor, the avoidance of shame, part of the way that you get large quantities of honor in this culture was, was hospitality. And not only that, nobody thought about themselves as living independently. The idea of the suburbs makes absolutely no sense to the Middle East, ancient world. You don't go inside of your house and not see anybody. You, you don't go inside of your house and kind of cocoon away from the rest of the street. In the ancient Middle Eastern world to this day, what you do affects not only you, but your family. And not just your family, but your entire village. And so he doesn't have anything to show hospitality to this guy that's come to him in the middle of the night. But because of the way that the village life works, everybody knows who has extra bread. And so late at night he goes to his friend's house and says, Hey, friend, somebody has come on a long journey, friend, and I have nothing to lay before him. Could you spare some bread? And Jesus says, and from inside, this guy says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now everybody is laughing at this point because no one in their right mind would do this. I mean, the kids can go back to sleep. The dog will stop barking. The door can be unlocked and locked. The wife can roll over and go to bed. It's no big deal to go and to get the bread and to give it and everything is safe. And for this guy to say, I'm not going to do it for these reasons, everybody's laughing because, Jesus, nobody would do that. I mean, come on, Jesus, you know what kind of people we are. No one would ever do that kind of thing. And Jesus says, exactly. And then he says, I tell you, even though, and he's talking about the sleeper, the sleeper will not get up and give him everything because he is his friend Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, for the longest time, I, I preached this as, well, if the answer is no, then you've got to bang on heaven's door. You've got you've to, some of the, 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 the later NIV says, you know, it, because of his audacious persistence. Doesn't that sound like great faith? except that Jesus taught us to pray, God's will be done. Is it possible that Jesus would say that if God himself, in the parable, the sleeper, says no, that we, as his children, should keep banging on the door of heaven until we get what we want? I think that's wrong. We pray for the will of God to be done in our lives. And when the answer is no, the answer is no. It's no. Well, in later scholarship, this word has been discovered in a couple of different places. This word that we translate as persistence or boldness or audaciousness. And in the new copies of the, in the, the, new, uh, the revision of the NIV, you'll even see a footnote that at the bottom what I think is the right translation. He's not going to get up because of friendship. He's not going to get up because it's convenient. He gets up because Anadea, his blamelessness or his pursuit of honor, 
is at stake. We have always taken this parable, at least I've always taken this parable, to be a, a story about our, what we do in prayer. What Jesus is saying is that the key to your prayer life is not you. The key to, the, to prayer is the nature of God and how much you embrace that and how much you know about it and how much you have tasted it and, and how much you have experienced the greatness of God in your prayer life. You know, there's this place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, there are people that love to stand on the street corners. And they love to be in the fine robes called rabbi. And they pray so that everybody can see them. And they love it when everybody thinks that they're spiritual and think that they're a man of God or a woman of God because of this public prayer. He says there's another kind of danger there too. And that's to think, like the pagans, that everything good about your prayer and successful about your prayer has to do with your words. Has to do with your words. He says, don't be like the pagans who keep on babbling. God's not impressed by the number of words. But when you pray, you recognize Him as our Father. And so what Jesus is saying is that the key that you see to my prayer life is not these magic words that we say as if we can convince God or argue God into a position where He's got to give us what we want or what we need but it rises or falls on how we perceive God. And when we perceive God as Father, or we perceive God as, as this, this loving God who forgives and is merciful and provides, and we see the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know what He has done in giving us His Son, then it changes. It changes our prayer life. Think about a marriage. You know, you can go through the mechanics of marriage, right? You come home, you say mechanically, I love you. You can say, here's the paycheck. You can do all of the right things, all of the wrong things, but do you have a relationship? No. At least not a very deep one. But the more you get to know that wife, the more you get to know that, that husband, the more the words, I love you, more the words, until death do we part, does that take meaning and substance? And so what Jesus is teaching is it has the center of that parable is not us. The center of that parable is that guy upstairs who represents God, who's not going to go down because of friendship, but he's going to go down because that is his nature. And when you understand the nature of God, it transforms your prayer life. And based on that, that's when Jesus comes to the challenge and says, okay, then pray. Pray. Ask. And you'll get an answer. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And then he says, you know, it, you fathers, you fathers, even though you're evil, and he's just talking about our fallen nature. We're not perfect. He says, even you, you evil fathers, when your son asks for a snake, or a snake, <laughs> asks for bread, it's not going to give him a snake or an egg, will give him a scorpion. Why? Because you know. How much more then will our Father, who is perfect, 
and loving and great and boggles our imagination. Bless us with those answers. When, when Jesus walked his life in prayer, the greatness of his prayer life was in his view of God. So I'd ask, as, as you leave this morning, dedicate yourself not to trying to find words, even though there's nothing wrong with, with, with trying to find words that express the sentiments of your heart, but your prayer life is going to rise and fall on this relationship that you have with God and how you understand God in that relationship, who He is, and how he, what it is He desires, what it is that is on His heart. And the second thing, there was something about the prayer life of Jesus that just captured the attention of these fellows. I would, I would challenge you, as you discover the greatness of a God in a transforming way to your prayer life and to your own life, that you think about, what does my prayer life say about the existence of God? It's a fellow by the name of George Mueller. He's a Prussian and he's a Puritan in the 1800s. So this is not a guy with much of a sense of humor. And as a, a, a Christian, he wanted to go to Bristol, England, and he wanted to reach out to the Jewish community there with the gospel. But while he was there, it was during the Industrial Revolution in England, the 1800s, and he saw what was happening with kids, and he saw these kiddos that because of their circumstances, their poverty, because of the, the labor laws, because of the danger in those factories, uh, there were a lot of them that didn't have anybody to take care of them. His heart went out to him. And George Mueller is the father of the modern orphanage. And one of the things that uh, strikes you about Mueller's life is not that he just had a different way of approaching and taking care and ministering to these orphans, but the way that he got it done. The, the orphanages or the orphanage that he started, he never asked for a cent. What he wanted to do in his prayer life was to prove the existence of God. And so he would pray for the daily bread, the daily milk. There's one story that uh, comes to us from his life that he got up, he was getting dressed, he was getting ready to go to his morning prayers when the cook knocks on the door and says, uh, Brother Mueller, we don't have any milk. What are the orphans supposed to drink? And he said, God will provide. He goes out to his prayer. He was a, a place where he would walk. It was actually literally kind of like a stadium in the sense that he could walk back and forth and pray and there would be people who would come and watch Mueller pray. And in the middle of that prayer, there was a knock on the door, the back kitchen door, and it's a milkman. And he says, I've got all of this leftover milk. Could you use it? And that for seven years is the way that the orphanage operated. Just day by day by day. What does your prayer life, as it's observed, say about God? And what does your prayer life say about you? And what can it say to those who struggle with whether or not there's a God? When Jesus prayed it was as if everything that he experienced in that prayer and in that time of prayer 
gave power and impetus to everything else that he did. Let me invite you to get in on that walk with the Christ. And it begins by, by coming to that place in your life where you go, you know, I, I really do believe this. I really do believe it. And, and I, that, that's the life I, I want. I want a life that is so centered in God that it gives me a foundation, it gives me security, it gives me a, a sense of confidence in this, in this life. It takes away most of my fears. That's the kind of life that is offered by God. That begins when you become his child, his son, his daughter, having your sins washed away in baptism, recognizing and confessing that he is Lord, of of changing the direction of your life in repentance and growing each and every day as a young child grows up and knows more and more and more about their father. We grow up knowing more and more about our father who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. If that describes you, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them about how you become a child of God today as we stand and praise God together. I cannot today what tomorrow 